Now please turn your Bibles to the book of Romans in chapter 8. You can find this on page 1301 in the Pew Bible. Uh, taking a little break from our series through the book of Judges. So if you're visiting with us um, and you want to come back, we'll, we'll, we're at the end stages in a long series through the book of Judges. Uh, given the rather complicated nature of the part of that book we're in, I thought maybe for a friend day it would be good just to try a little bit of a change up. So we're going to go to Romans 8. And uh, these verses that we're going to talk about today are very familiar but I would say often underappreciated, uh, not uh, maybe I would say poorly applied in terms of how we use them. And so uh, rightly understood, uh, these verses are a tremendous encouragement to us. So I'm going to read, I'm going to begin at verse 18 for context, but then really we'll focus in on uh, verse 28 in particular. I'll read from 18 down to 30. This is the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we've also, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Uh, amen. This is the word of God. May he bless it to us as we consider it this morning. I saw on a news program this week, uh, President Biden being interviewed or really just talking with the press as he was flying. I'm not sure he's either flying to or from Israel. And he was explaining to the members of the press how uh, he likes to talk about his own experiences with suffering uh, when he goes to speak to people who are suffering. Um, and he specifically said because he thinks it helps uh, give people something to grab onto. People need some source of hope. And in essence saying, you know, by, by communicating, hey, uh, we've made it through suffering, you can make it through suffering, everything will work out just fine. And we would love for that to be true. We would love to be able to say, hey, it's all going to work out fine. 
you know, all, the, all your young people are going off to war and you're being attacked from all sides, for example, in Israel. But if we say it's just going to be fine, we'd love for that to be the case. But in our heart of hearts, we wonder if that's really going to, to work out very well. And sadly, I think this verse that we have before us today in, in uh, verse 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him, is a, is, a, is a saying that we can often turn into a kind of platitude that sounds nice. We, we might even say that to a loved one who's in a time of suffering, but it's easy to say, and in our heart of hearts, we're wondering, really, is it really going to work out? It doesn't look like it's working out that way. We doubt that it really is. And, and sometimes, because we misunderstand what this is a promise of, we feel like, uh, we're looking for some kind of a superficial, almost, hey, it's all going to work out uh, kind of a thing. And that's not what this verse is, uh, is about at all. And, and I think, actually, this, is, this verse teaches you a truth that you need to cling to. I mean, this is a truth you need uh, when life gets difficult. And it's absolutely essential to our Christian life. And, and the point here is that God, the all-powerful God, so orchestrates every detail of your life that everything that happens to you is for your ultimate spiritual good. And that is a truth that you need to rely on and to believe. And so as we look at the passage, I hope that you'll see this truth. Um, there is in the bulletin uh, an outline that we'll be working through. There's also a number of cross-references that I'll be referring to, and you might want to look at those as we work through this passage. Well, the first thing, well, I guess before I do that, I want to tell the children... Uh, I've asked you in your outline if you could draw a picture maybe of something that uh, Pastor Philip was talking to you about, about Joseph and his brothers. And what does Joseph say to his brothers at the end of this whole event? And what does that show us about the way God works? Well, the first thing I want us to notice here is that at times it may seem like God is not answering your prayers so we need to realize that this promise in, in, in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good. This comes in, uh, in the midst of a, of a long letter, and so we have to understand the context. And, and most commentators think that sort of what Paul's doing here is anticipating an unspoken question from his reader. And the question from his reader is, is sort of like, really, Paul, it doesn't look like things are going very well. Remember, the, the, the thesis of the book of Romans, Paul begins in the first chapter by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So he's writing to a church. It's got Jewish believers, Gentile believers. There's friction in the church. And he's writing to them about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save all people and to unite the church. And he spends really the first six chapters laying that out. And then in the seventh chapter, he talks about what then is the role of the law and how the gospel frees us from domination of the law. And then he gets to chapter eight. And you might be surprised to know this, but chapter eight mentions the Holy Spirit more than any chapter in the entire Bible. And so he talks about how the Spirit frees us from sin and the Spirit gives us grace to obey and the Spirit uh, is actually with us. And we read this part in our prayers that sometimes we don't even know how to pray and the Spirit intercedes and helps us pray. And so after Paul said all these things, it's like his reader is saying, Paul, I'm looking around at the life I'm living and the difficulties I'm facing 
And I'm not seeing what you're describing. I'm not seeing this wonderful life where the Spirit guides me and everything is going smoothly. And so Paul is anticipating this and addressing it. Now, Paul is not a Pollyanna. He says in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time. He, he knows that the people are in the midst of sufferings. He knows in verse 26 when he says, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray. That there are times when we're so befuddled and so disturbed, we don't even know how to pray about it. And, um, and Paul's helping them to address this, but he's acknowledging here that sometimes it seems like our prayers are not being answered and things are not going the way we would like them to go. And Paul is addressing this. Children, do you, have you ever had an experience where you prayed for something? You prayed really hard uh, to get an A on the test or to win the big game uh, or that you do well on your recital or that you'd make a new friend and it seemed like God didn't hear and God didn't answer your prayer. Well, if you feel like that, uh, welcome to the club because uh, all of us have had experiences like that uh, where we prayed. We prayed for our spouse. We prayed for a new job. We prayed for physical healing. Uh, we prayed that God would give us new friends. We prayed for victory over a particular sin or for the salvation of a loved one. And it seems like there are times when God is not listening. And so we remind ourselves that the Bible is refreshingly real because Paul comes in with verse 28 to people who might be questioning whether God is really listening. James Boyce commenting on this, and this is in your outline, said, Paul was no sentimentalist. He had been persecuted, beaten, stoned, and shipwrecked. He had been attacked and consistently slandered. Paul did not go around saying how wonderful the world was or how pleasant his missionary endeavors had been. In fact, what he actually said was, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He was giving his life in service to others. And often it can feel like this to, to us. We're, we're giving out ourselves. We're praying for these things that we earnestly desire. And it seems like God is not listening. And so this is the context of this promise. Secondly, we see here that in reality, though, the all-powerful God is always working for the good of his people. So Paul says in verse 28, specifically, we know in all thing, that all things work together for good. And in the original language, it actually uses uh, the word synergy there. Uh, all things synergize for good. And that's why most of the English translations sort of say work together. The idea is you have all these things coming together to produce good. And Paul's not saying that this is sort of a natural property of the universe that uh, it self-organizes into good. And so this is why we can say to people, hey, it's all going to work out in the end. I think uh, Mr. Spock famously said that, right, that if the, um, if the universe is fated to be a certain way, it's going to be a certain way. And there's some people who live their lives uh, sort of embracing that idea. But what Paul is saying is not that this is some property of the universe, but that the sovereign God who rules over all things is going to make this happen. He, in fact, is working in all these details to bring about this synergy of his plan. And we sang about this just a little while ago in Psalm 103. This is in your outline. The Lord has established his throne in heaven 
and his kingdom rules over all, that God rules over all things. Or in Matthew 10, 29 to 31, where Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Do you understand how significant that verse is? That the sovereign God who rules the universe has the hairs of your head numbered. Now some of you are saying there aren't many left and so that's not such a big deal. But the point is he knows the details. A bird cannot fall uh, and die apart from God's willing it to happen. That God is over all things. And our, our text is reminding you that the all-powerful God is so orchestrating your life and the world around you that everything that happens is a part of his plan that works together to produce good in your life. John Calvin commenting on this says, Paul now draws this conclusion from what has been said that so far are the troubles of this life from hindering our salvation that on the contrary, they are helps to it. The difficult things themselves are all part of this. But note that there's an important qualifier in this verse. He says, all things work together for good to those who love God. This is a promise for God's people. And in fact, in the original language, this is first. For those who love God, all things work together for the good. And that is an important caveat. Uh, it also, we might say, well, who are those who love God? The, the, later in the verse, it says, those who are called according to his purpose. And this is, uh, we're talking about this in our membership class right now. This is the effectually called. This is not the invited, right? Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. There he's talking about those who are invited. But here in Romans 8, he's talking about those who are called effectively by the Holy Spirit in such a way that they're changed and they become lovers of God. I put in the outline um, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 31, that tells us what effectual calling is. It's the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You see what he says, the Holy Spirit convinces you that you're a sinner. That's not something you figure out on your own. That you're, that you're not just that you make mistakes sometimes, but that you've sinned against God. And then also enlightens your mind so that you understand the gospel and then renews your will so that you can choose according to the good that you now know. And then what do you do? You willingly embrace Christ. You respond to the gospel, but you're doing that because the Spirit has changed you and made you into a lover of God. As Paul writes in another place in 2 Timothy 1.9, he says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And notice the emphasis there is on his purpose. That's the same emphasis we have in verse 28. It talks about those who are called according to his purpose. It's God's action. It's God's initiation. It's God's purpose. And this is why no one comes to faith unless God works first. If God left us to do what seemed right to us, 
no one would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul makes that clear in this book, back in chapter three. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And so uh, we have to recognize that what keeps Romans 8.28 from being a sort of empty platitude that tells you, hey, everything is okay, is that this is directed to his people, people whom he has saved, whom Christ has died for, who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And in that setting, God uses prosperity uh, to bless and encourage, also uses hardship at times to teach and to help us learn. But every single thing that happens is a part of his desire to do good for his people. Now, don't miss the obvious implication of this, which is that if you are not a Christian, you cannot say this. You cannot say, yes, God's working all these details out for my good, apart from having a relationship with him. The adversity you face, the prosperity you experience. In fact, what often happens to people who have not been saved by God who have prosperity? They become more and more convinced that they don't need God. And you, you go and ask your neighbors um, if, if they're aware of their sin and their need of a savior. And they'll look at you like, are you, what are you talking about? I don't need anything. I've got a nice car and I've got money in my bank account. What are you talking about? Needing something. God, is ha God has to work in our lives to bring us to know him. And then we can claim this promise as our own. So this is a challenge. The all-powerful God is at work. He's at work to bring about good in the lives of his people. Now, thirdly, we see here that by good, Paul means that God is at work to make you more like his glorified son. I'm, sh I'm sure you parents have had the experience. You leave the kids with the babysitter. Uh, you come back and you say to the kids, have you been good? And the kids, oh, yes, we've been good. You get the babysitter over on the side and you, you, you realize, oh, the definition of good here really uh, maybe is sort of flexible. It depends on what good means as to whether or not the kids have really been good. I'm not talking about my own children, of course, but you, you, know, the, you know the story. But here Paul tells us so we can understand what the good that Paul has in mind. So, so often we would read this verse and when we hear good, we're thinking about material wealth and comfort, physical health, uh, popularity, influence, happiness. But this is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about your ultimate spiritual good. This is what you've been chosen for, what he's doing in your life spiritually. Verse 29 helps us here because it says that those he foreknew he, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. That's the target, to make you more like Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. And um, it's interesting because uh, some of the commentators uh, actually said, well, conforming us to Christ, what does that mean? Uh, that means making us all suffering servants. And um, that, that may be part of what's going on, but I think if we look at the text, we see again and again this idea repeated about what Paul has in mind. And actually, if we go back to verse 17, even the verse before I read, it mentions them being joint heirs with Christ 
if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. Or in verse 18, it talks about the present sufferings not being worthy of comparison with the glory that shall be, shall be revealed in us. Or verse 19 talks about us being revealed as the sons of God. Or verse 21, uh, talking about how uh, the, the whole creation uh, being uh, re- renovated into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Or again, in verse 23, it talks about us being, our bodies being redeemed. Or finally, in verse 30, where it talks about what happens to those that he's called, they are also justified and also glorified. And so if you look through the whole passage, we get again and again this idea that being conformed to the image of Christ means being conformed to the image of Christ as he is when Paul writes this, as he is now, which is the glorified son of God who's ruling over all things, whose body, Jesus was perfect spiritually, he never sinned, but he had a body that was liable uh, to, to fatigue and all the other challenges. He had a real human body, but now he, his body has been completely transformed. It's glorified. It's not subject to, to, to illness and to decay and to anything like that. And that is the promise for all of God's people, all the people who are connected to Christ, that God is transforming you from the inside out and making you in the image of Jesus Christ, perfected in spirit and in body, uh, prepared to live forever with him. And the, the great encouragement, we actually had this as a question in our class this morning, when does this begin? Uh, it's certainly not completed until Jesus comes again, but it's, it's genuinely beginning now as the Lord, if, he, if you're in a relationship with God, that process has started And he's in that work, doing that work of renovating you in every capacity, making you perfect like Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry speaking about this says, either directly or indirectly, every providence has a tendency to the spiritual good of those that love God, breaking them off from sin, bringing them nearer to God, weaning them from the world, fitting them for heaven. And you see how how much better that is than just making you happy now. We want that verse to mean God will make me happy now, but it means something so much better that you are going to be conformed to the glorious image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the work that God is doing. You know, some things in our lives are wonderful. Um, A new baby is born, somebody graduates, uh, you get a new job. Uh, wonderful things. Some things are tragic. Uh, you get a severe health diagnosis. You lose a loved one. Uh, you have a job termination, or as we've seen in the news, terrorism and war. Uh, some things are annoying and mundane. You get, you get a traffic ticket. Uh, you can't find a parking spot. An appliance breaks. Right? But God, what this text is saying is that God is using all of those things the good, the difficult, the mundane, and the trivial to work in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful part of the message of the book of Job, right? Job is a man who loses everything. And and we're wondering, why has this happened? And at the end of the book, Job says, I've heard of you, 
by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. That he perceived God in a whole new way through the things that he experienced. That's what God is doing, preparing us to live with Jesus Christ, to be like Jesus Christ forever and ever. Well, fourthly, we see here that in making you like Jesus, God is able even to make use of things that are in themselves evil. And, and we need to be very careful here because we are not saying that everything that happens to you in life is good. It's not good. There are many things that are evil in and of themselves. Cancer is evil. Tornadoes are evil. Car wrecks are evil. Miscarriages are evil. Poverty is evil. Death is evil. Those things are not good things. Paul is not teaching some kind of a bizarre, otherworldly approach to life where we call things that are evil good. That's not at all what's going on. We're not Christian scientists saying it's all an illusion and uh, really everything's just fine. That's not what we're being called to do. What we, are what we are being told here, though, is that God is so powerful and wise that he is able to overrule and to use these evil things to accomplish his good purposes. He's never the author of evil, but he can ordain and use it in such a way that he accomplishes his plans. I put in the outline uh, from the Confession of Faith, uh, the modern language version, uh, an explanation of this idea, and I think this is helpful. God's providence reveals his almighty power, unknowable wisdom, and infinite goodness. His providence extends even to the fall and to all other sins of angels and men. These sins are not simply allowed by God, but are bound, ordered, and governed by him in the fullness of his wisdom and power so that they fulfill his own holy purposes. However, the sinfulness still belongs to the creature and does not proceed from God whose holy righteousness does not and cannot cause or approve of sin. Now there's a mystery there. Saying in our class today, you know, don't, don't ask us to draw a diagram of how this, actual, this exactly works. But this is what the scripture teaches. That God can govern this world and God is in no ways tainted by sin. And that's a wonderful encouragement uh, to us. Because we live in a world where evil exists. And if this wasn't true, the alternative is very terrifying indeed. Uh, that evil is loose and doing whatever it will, and that we just have to hope for the best. As James said in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Uh, we're reminded that God is not tainted at all. The sin that is in the world comes from us, the sinners. Now, this is one of the reasons I was hoping Philip would talk to the children about Joseph and his brothers, because it's such a great example of this concept. You know, what the brothers did to him was terrible. And, and by all rights, uh, he would have died, you know, working some terrible job um, and died as a young man in terrible conditions. And yet we saw how God intervened and guided his life and sent him to this prison and he was able to be there when these dreams were, were uh, had and to interpret them. And God was working in all of that. So at the end of it all, when the brothers realize who he is 
and what they've done. And they're terrified that Joseph is going to get revenge on them now that he knows who they are. And what does Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And it's a wonderful picture of what we're talking about, how even God is able to use even those kind of things to bring about his good purposes. And of course, we know that's the case because that's the only way we can have a savior. The greatest evil that's ever been done in this world is the torture and murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in that great evil, God was accomplishing the greatest good that's ever happened, the salvation of sinners. And so we rejoice that God is able to take our evil and to use it for his good. And we need to remember that when we're afflicted with evil ourselves. And we need to be reminded that evil is not just running wild in the world. We do not need to be terrified. There is never a time when we should be overcome with despair or filled with fear about our circumstances because God is governing even those things that bring us adversity. God is so glorious that even the things that are evil in this world, he can use to make you more like Jesus Christ. So finally then, this just reminds us that the fact that God is working all things together for your good, if you're one of his people, that is a truth you and I need to hold on to and cling to it tightly. You notice here in verse 28, Paul says, and we know. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, we hope. He doesn't say, we think. He doesn't say, we feel like this might be the case. He says, we know. Which is really interesting because just a couple of verses before, in verse 26, he said, we don't know what we should pray for. So speaking to people who don't even know what to pray for sometimes, he can tell you, this is one thing you can know, that all things are working together for your good. That is a truth that we have to hold on to and rely on it. And how does Paul know this? How does Paul know this truth? Jesus told him. This is in the word of God. How do you know this truth? Because Jesus had to has told you. And the problem isn't that this truth isn't there. It's that we haven't hung on to it as the word of God, as a promise from God. This is what we need. That's a problem as we so often forget. And we just need to be reminded. Because there are times when we feel like things are not working for our good. And Paul had those times as well. And you and I may forget promises like these, but Jesus Christ never forgot these promises. He went to the cross knowing that God was working all things for good. And because Jesus did that, people like you and me who forget can be forgiven, can be helped. And our, our hope has to be that the Lord will help us remember this truth and to hold fast to it. Uh, I know a number of you came to hear Colin's talk on Thursday. If you missed it, go uh, see it. We've got it on the YouTube channel. Uh, it, was, it was a great uh, uh, talk on the first pandemic of the Roman Empire. 
And the fact that when this pandemic hit, it was the first time it had been really something of global proportions like that that we have in history. And the Christians stood out at that time because they didn't, those who were able, didn't flee away from the pandemic. They didn't abandon their brothers and sisters. They didn't let their bodies rot and collect in the streets, which is what was happening all around them. They stayed. They stayed to care for the sick. They stayed to bury the dead with dignity and with honor, and a lot of them died because they made that decision to stay. And, and Colin made a great point in that talk. They, not, they never looked at this as, oh, we're being punished because we've been bad. This is a blessing that we get to serve others united to Christ. And how is it, how is it that someone stays to care for their friend, knowing it probably is going to mean their own death? It's only if you believe scriptures like this one, that God is ruling over all, that he's working all things for our good, and you see how liberating that is, because those people were able to serve God even when death was unlikely outcome. And that's the kind of people the church needs, and that's not who we are by nature. But the more we believe this promise, the more we're freed up to be the people God wants us to be. He is the all-powerful God. And he so works in your life that everything that happens is a part of his plan to make you more like Jesus Christ. Hold on to that truth and praise him for his faithfulness to us. Let's thank him and, uh, and pray that he would help us to remember this. Heavenly Father, we confess that this is a verse we're familiar with. Maybe we, it rolls off our tongue uh, glibly. We pray that you would forgive us to the extent that we've treated this just like another one of those uh, everything will be all right kind of statements. Lord, help us to see here is a reality about your work amongst your people, that you love us so much and that you are so wise and powerful, uh, that you are absolutely committed to making us like Jesus Christ and you're doing that work through all of the little things that are going on around us and in your world. And Lord, we couldn't manage it. We can't even begin to comprehend it but how we praise you that you and in your infinite wisdom and power are able to orchestrate things so that they work for our genuine good. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to know this truth with certainty. And if there are any among us, Lord, who do not know you, that you would be drawing us to faith and love for Christ, that we might embrace this wonderful promise, your commitment to us. And we pray, Lord, you would help us even in the coming week when difficult times come that we would remember you are at work, you are at work for our good, that we would be more like the Lord Jesus Christ and how thankful we are that that is your commitment to us. We pray for your help in these things in Jesus' name, amen. And now we'll sing back to God from his word from Psalm 37, selection C.
This uh, portion of the psalm reminds us that God establishes the steps uh, of his people. Even if we stumble, we will not fall down. The Lord is with us to help us along. You see in stanza 10, at the second half of that, it it says, uh, the Lord loves true justice. He will not leave his godly ones. They will be preserved forever while cut off our sinner's son. So this wonderful promise that he will be with his people forever. He will guide us and deliver us. Let's stand and we'll sing our praise to the Lord.